The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. On this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we're continuing our travel on the song lines, and we make a turn on the Clarinet Road. Our guest, Evan Christopher, is a musician, performing and recording artist, a composer, and advocate of the New Orleans clarinet tradition. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure, Paul. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. (laughs) It's good to have you. So you have California beginnings. That's true. Everybody got to be from somewhere. (laughs) What part of California? So I was born and raised in Long Beach, California, just a little bit south of Los Angeles. Okay. And are your parents musical people? Not particularly. No? I think my dad, uh, my dad had fondness for uh, the big band vocalists mm-hmm. and uh, some of that music, some 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 early jazz. And uh, my mother was kind of uh, in that era. She was among the people that were kind of enthusiasts of the of the folk, uh, the folk movement. Folk music. Well, uh, I mean, I guess the, in the record collection, so there was some Artie Shaw on my dad's side, and there was some um, Pete Seeger and <laughs> Woody Guthrie on the on the uh, on her on her collection. Interesting. So, why the clarinet? Well, first was piano. I took piano lessons when I was when I was really little, but to be in the school band, I wanted to pick an instrument, and so in middle school, uh, the clarinet suited me because I was a little young for my grade and small for my age. Hmm. Are you grateful that you had that piano foundation? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> and I, I still use it for you know as a, as a tool for arranging and composing. And it was very visual. It made it made learning the, the, the learning the clarinet easier. I think. The other thing about clarinet was just that physically it was a, an attractive, uh, it was an attractive instrument. It was the mm-hmm. only one of the woodwinds that was actually made of wood, and mm-hmm. um, the the metalwork was, uh, you know, it was it was just a, a charming instrument. And when you were starting out, what were the players? Who were the players? Well, now yeah. when I was starting out, I actually had to had to turn to the record collection to hear what it was supposed to sound like. And um, although I I think I I think I checked out some LPs of classical music from the from the public library, I think the only places that I heard clarinet were on um, some LPs that included Artie Shaw, some of the Bluebird recordings from the '30s with his big band, and. I think there was the ubiquitous Ackerbilk record, and there was uh, Hot Fives LP of the uh, on Columbia with some of the um, with uh, Johnny Dodds, of course, on most of it. And the decision that you made at some point that you were going to move to Louisiana. Well, the decision was made um, just because I was just knocked out the first time I ever visited the city. I was touring. Uh, after right after college was so even even on the cusp of finishing college, I was working and touring with a singer songwriter from San Diego, California, and we ended up with a tour that stopped at uh, Tipitina's uh, for a show. And it was the summer of 1994, and because we had arrived a day early from Chicago, I actually don't really want to know how fast we were driving to make that. But um, but woke up on the tour bus in New Orleans, and it was like I was in another world. I mean, just the 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 humidity that you can cut with a knife and everything sticking out of the ground crooked as can be and and uh and i met so many young players or players at least my age at the time i was in my early 20s who were enthusiasts of traditional new orleans music 
some of them were from New Orleans and some of them weren't. And, and, uh, it seemed like there would be plenty of opportunities to, to perform, um, that music that I liked. And the recordings that have been made that we think of being clarinet centric, which ones do you think are shining examples? The recordings that, well, they were clarinet centric. Now, most of the early jazz that features some of the New Orleans clarinetists, I don't necessarily think they're always at the forefront, but there's something about the, the early jazz, especially if it features, you know, collective improvisation with the ensemble and there's a clarinet in there. The way it rides over the top of the texture, it's pretty easy to have your attention drawn to it, I mm. think. So, so even band recordings like Louis Armstrong's band, although Johnny Dawes is just a supporting player, I mean, he's so clear and, and he's so clear in there that it's, that it's, it has, for me, the role is almost equally as prominent. So as far as actual clarinet centric records, I mean, of course, I think the, uh, the, the trios of, of Benny Goodman with, uh, with Gene Krupa and Teddy Wilson are pretty iconic. Um, but I was actually more drawn to the small group sides by Artie Shaw that uh, his Gramercy 5 and even later versions of the Gramercy 5, um, like the DECA recordings that came considerably later, I really loved, the, I really loved the, those, those particular sounds. I know, that's a good question. Some of my other favorite recordings that I was turned on to pretty early on included the Harlem Ham Fats uh, that had, um, that had uh, clarinet in, in there as well. And later uh, I became, I was far more interested in Alcide Yellow Nunez, uh, an Isleño uh, Louis, uh, clarinet player from, from New Orleans who was kind of around the scene of New York the same time as the original Dixieland Jazz Band. But those recordings, didn't, I didn't dig those as much as I dug the recordings of uh, Alcide Nunez on the, uh, with the Louisiana Five. Those Louisiana Five sides were, were a real, uh, for um, early jazz, they were a real uh, they're very clarinet centric because the there's no trumpet it's clarinet and trombone instead of uh instead of trumpet being the lead instrument and then a lot of trio recordings so when i just when i was looking for the new orleans clarinet players it turned out that many of them played in band settings but also had their own their own recordings in small groups uh lewis cottrell jr with the living legend series on riverside those are just uh those are magical uh um, recordings for me and when i Think about Raymond Burke. Of course, he's got some band sides, but uh, there's also a nice trio that he did for 504 Records with Butch Thompson. And and uh, I don't know. I think there's so many. I, I don't know about Iconic, though. That's a, that's a tricky one. It kind of depends on what people are into. To be into traditional New Orleans music, or maybe people are more into early jazz records, or maybe people are maybe, maybe people are into more modern uh, clarinet music. I don't know, or swing era music. It's just, it's always a little, it's always kind of depends. There's so many sort of subgenres in the, in the, uh, the traditional styles before, you know, before World War II. And then don't forget the revival period after World War II that features great clarinetists such as George Lewis and Albert Burbank. I don't know. It's, it's, it's all, it's a, it's a big palette of, of uh, clarinet sounds out there that I, that I became fascinated by. And, uh, even though Sidney Bechet recorded much more on soprano sax, I always, always go to his clarinet recordings as being, what was the word used, iconic. Yeah, Absolutely. I listened uh, 
and watched the performance you did of Petit Fleur. Yeah. Great. More of a modern, kind of a modern version? Or, um, or, uh, it, it, was, it was a version you did. It was on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So I had an opportunity in 2009 to go to Paris and be involved in a television uh, jazz award show. And my part was a small tribute to Sidney Bechet. Um, so we did a, a kind of a more modern version of Petite Fleur just because I was self-conscious about, well, here it is 2009. I've got to do something a little bit more you know, personal or different. So, But I've, I mean, I've recorded it more traditionally also. So mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not. Tell us about that experience, the the time you spent in France. Uh, you know, there's some ambivalence surrounding the, my my short period of, of being in France because it was it came on the heels of uh, the failure of the federal levies in New Orleans in 2005. So at the beginning of 2006, I had accepted an artist residency on the invitation of the city in Paris and um, the French American Cultural Exchange, and so. I basically, not knowing when I'd be able to return to New Orleans or if I if I was going to, I spent most of 2006 and a good portion of 2007 trying to base myself in in uh, in, in Paris. And the ambivalence is is because I was, you know, kind of forced to go somewhere else, and I didn't really have a lot. There's a lot of uncertainty in that period, and not much more than a suitcase full of clothes and a couple of clarinets. Some stuff I managed to salvage and I put in a storage unit. The other part, the other part that was a little disappointing was um, I wasn't actually going to live in France. I was just, I was just, it was an artist residency. I was given a place to, uh, I was given a, a small apartment and a little bit of a stipend, and I could kind of do what I wanted. But the program hadn't actually integrated any specific programming. So the burden of making the residency meaningful was kind of on me. When you're making your own recordings, what is the mission that you have when you go into the recording studio? That's a good question, Paul. For recording, it's kind of evolved because I think the opportunities I was given to record under my own name with, with, uh, say, the great pianist Dick Hyman or guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli, I felt an obligation to make sure that there were some original pieces represented. And before that, I think it was more about uh, every project has had sort of a different a different goal. Um, there was a ragtime record. That the goal was actually to kind of add or continue the tradition of some ragtime trio tracks created by Tony Parenti. Other projects have been where I'm featured in somebody else's musical group or a band. But my own projects, sometimes there's a narrative built in. For instance, there's three recordings I did with a group that I, I had called Janguala Creole, which was kind of trying to blend the Manouche gypsy jazz style with uh, the New Orleans clarinet style, which I based historically on the incident of Barney Bigard getting to record a few tracks with Django in Paris. I think now that that's kind of my, my, my goal with recordings is to make sure that there's some some element of hybridity, <laughs> if you will, a couple things that, that you know you might not expect to go together, but always coming back to the New Orleans clarinet style. So every everyone's different. Every every recording ends up being a little bit different goal. Well, you mentioned two artists there a moment ago who have been on this show. Dick Hyman was just maybe 
week and a half ago. Wonderful. That's great. And I'm hoping you can tell us about working with him. Well, I've gotten to work with him on and off over over a couple decades, and every every experience is uh, is not only an honor and a and a, and a great pleasure, but uh, a learning experience as well. So it's uh, and some of the occasions have been very short, where we just get to spend an afternoon together, maybe a rehearsal, and then a show, and we don't see each other for a few months. And then there have been other times when uh, we've gotten to hang out a little bit more. Brought him down to New Orleans a couple of years ago and had him do a master class at the at the university and and it's marvelous on not only a musical level but just the amount of the amount of music history that he's that he was he was there to to be a part of firsthand. That's been uh, that's the that's the that's the greatest thing. And for pianists, I can only I can only imagine that just the sheer breadth of vocabulary that he's that he's mastered has got to be pretty awesome too for me i i, I appreciate that as as well but i'm sure for a pianist it's probably really remarkable it's you know probably really remarkable so there's 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 that too and tell us about bucky Pizzarelli. what was he like for you to work with bucky's just such a gentleman and the same thing his longevity has given him Outside of his virtuosity, his longevity has given him, has made him so important for musicians like myself to kind of fill in some of those historical, uh, historical gaps. It's, uh, it's really every time you're with him, you, you're not even with very little effort, you're learning more and more about, about this, the whole, the whole, not only the history of the music, but the, 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 the conditions of the, of the, working environments and the, the industry itself and not just for jazz too i mean you know i mean dick dick hyman you, i get a great advice about film scoring and uh, bucky pizzarelli great you know great reminiscences about what it used to be like when when radio stations had their own their own orchestras and, and television you know when they had their own staff musicians and things like this and so i think those are the the greatest contributions for for uh for rank and file cats like like me, it's sort of trying to get a glimpse as to as to you know just what goes into not only having longevity as a performer, but longevity as a as a professional. And we're recording this in Georgia. Yes, here we are outside of Atlanta. <laughs> so tell us about the life of a traveling musician. What is that like for you? Well, I tell you what, Paul, it's changed a lot in very recent months because now I have an 18-month-old. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's changed a lot. I think Clarinet Road, I was pretty um, aggressive about using my music as an opportunity to see as much of the world as I could and to and to be meeting musicians from all over. And I guess that started, those first opportunities came actually in that same period, just as I was moving to New Orleans. There was a couple European tours right after I finished college. And there was uh, opportunities once I got to New Orleans with not only New Orleans musicians, but uh, Europeans who were had sort of moved to New Orleans. And I came along at a point where there were fewer veterans for them to, for them to showcase internationally. And, and that was sort of, um, it was sort of a shift. It was a shift. There weren't as many of the older musicians to take on the road, and there were younger musicians that were very enthusiastic about the style, like I was, and it was more economical for them, and, and maybe a little bit easier in some ways, too. <laughs> so it's changed. Being a traveling musician has been fraught 
with the, the same the same things that everybody experiences in international or, or air travel uh, with the security stuff and it's but now it's it's gotten you know for musicians sometimes it's even harder because of the amount of you know stuff that we have to drag along with us uh, and in some ways things have become a little you know much more portable I mean I remember in my early days how I'd have to you know pick out the you know, handful of CDs or cassette tapes that I wanted to bring. And so there was a box of cassettes and a box of CD, you know, a little envelope of CDs and the CD player and the, the little Walkman tape recorder. And, you know, you had this whole kind of separate little portion of your, of your luggage devoted to <laughs> just what you're going to bring with you on the road. Uh, you know, big old headphones. And uh, now it's, everything's a little more compact. You know, you can put everything on your, on your cell phone practically. So, that's been that's been an interesting change. Playing clarinet's been different because you don't have as many things to carry. In the rare cases, I have to drag along a saxophone. It's it's not as much fun. I think for me now that I'm older or somewhat older, it's it's uh, it's trickier. There's the business has changed, and there's definitely no shortage of cats half my age who are willing to work twice as hard for half the money, and that's that's made that's made it more of a challenge. I also think, Paul, that there's a bit of a, a ceiling on the on the income that you can have from just playing gigs and touring. It's become yeah, it's become a little it's become a little harder, at least in this genre of music, you know, instrumental music. And my aesthetic choice to pretty much prefer acoustic, intimate venues, it's become more and more difficult all the time to monetize. As countries all over are are having a harder time getting arts funding for presenting uh, music, especially music that involves international travel for their artists. Well, what has traveling taught you? What has traveling taught me? One of my greatest teachers, the bass player Marshall Hawkins, he logged a lot of miles with a lot of different people. And what he taught me, he was he was my teacher in high school, even though I didn't play bass. He, he taught me about jazz harmony and, and, and theory. But he also taught me that in the world today, some of the some of our, our biggest obstacles in not seeing the otherness of other people is being victims of limited experience. And racism is a big uh, um, bigotry, intolerance. Having opportunities to not be a victim of limited experience through travel and through meeting other people in your travels. I think that's the exposure to other cultures, exposure to every, you know, exposure to cultural traditions. All of this, I think, is really the biggest key to not not being limited to only what's familiar to you. That's what I think travels taught me the most: is to kind of try to try to go through go through life being a lot more open minded and accepting of 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 uh, of all the open, not just accepting, but open. To all the all the things that other cultures have to offer us. When somebody goes to one of your performances, what is the best case scenario that they get from seeing one of your shows? Wow. Well, boy, what the best case scenario. I think there's there's a lot of my goal lately in the last, you know, ten years or so, especially ten, fifteen years, has been to make sure that that there are actually multiple points of entry into the experience. Uh, 
So I don't know that I think there's necessarily a biggest takeaway, but I think for someone hearing this type of music for the first time, what I what I want their takeaway to be might be to be to be excited or curious to learn more about it. Whereas an aficionado coming to a show, I might have a I might I might have um their my biggest hope for them might be a little bit different. You know, I might hope that they now they're recognizing a level of nuance that that makes them that makes them want to maybe spend more time in New Orleans exploring exploring the the culture that is kind of behind the making of the music or maybe the takeaway if uh if they're musicians if they're a clarinet player maybe the takeaway is to is to make them excited and curious about expanding you know their own their own musical vocabulary i think it's different it depends on where they're coming from as to as to what i want the takeaway to be and i think it, i think i have the expectation lately of of having all of those types of people at shows i rarely i rarely have uh, shows where it's just um where a majority of people just don't know anything about me or the music. I rarely have shows where they, they're not familiar with jazz or not familiar with New Orleans music. It's kind of, kind of, it's always a nice mix. What do you think of the clarinet as a solo instrument? Well, I mean, what do I think of the clarinet as a solo instrument? I think it's the greatest instrument. Uh, 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 I don't know. I think uh, for myself, I, I feel like there's a, there's been a lot of advantages to focusing on the clarinet. So as a solo instrument, I love the I love the range of of uh, of colors, timbres, and even just the actual tessitura. The range of the instrument from top to bottom is 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 greater than than uh, I feel a lot of other instruments. And then specifically, New Orleans clarinet. As a solo, uh, as a solo instrument. Well, there's two sides to that. One, I think it's great because there's so many musicians that have added to the vocabulary of the instrument and created this 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 very regional style. At the same time, I still like it as having an, a role in the context of the of the New Orleans ensemble. And so, as a solo instrument, I think sometimes I, I miss that, but. Uh, I definitely, I definitely, I've been more focused on the clarinet in the New Orleans style as opposed to just the clarinet. The, the clarinet, I love classical clarinet and I love a lot of other ethnic styles of clarinet. But as a, as a solo instrument, I, I think in the New Orleans style, um, especially when there's influences of, of, of jazz, improvisation is a big part of it. I think there's a lot more. There's a lot more room for for uh, diverse approaches to the music. So for anyone who's listening in, wherever they may be, very open-ended as we're wrapping up here, what would you say to them? You can go anywhere. Who are we addressing? Whoever's listening. Wherever they may be, whenever they may listen. <laughs> um, so music listeners. Could be. Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, to anybody who might be hearing this. Oh, yeah. I said to, to anybody who might yeah. be hearing this. Yeah. Well, I genuinely hope that that their that their appreciation and curiosity for the power of live music is something that they'll they'll explore and embrace. I definitely I definitely hope that 
that anybody listening to me or other musicians talk about music, you know, creates enough of a, of a, of a curiosity for them to, for them to explore this world of, of, of nonverbal communication because it's, there's so much expressed in this rather abstract language. It's has so much power and potential. So I guess that's all, I guess that would be what I would, I would wish for anybody who might be hearing this. So my last question, who is Evan Christopher? Who is Evan Christopher? Wow. Well, I mean, he's just this guy that plays the clarinet, I guess. Evan Christopher is a musician who not only believes in the in the in the power of 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 music, but believes strongly in the lessons that the music of New Orleans has to offer people all over the world who might not be as fortunate to be somewhere where music has been the lifeblood of the people of that of that of where they where they live. Evan Christopher's a musician who's a little road weary maybe <laughs> but at, at the same time just uh never wants to miss out on an opportunity to have musical exchanges with uh, with other musicians you know, anywhere in the world and and uh to explore the possibilities of his chosen instrument. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks for letting us in. Paul, thanks for the time, and thanks for, thanks for letting me talk a little bit about the clarinet. My pleasure. Till next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>